When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 80s and 90s and 2000s extended business cycles because inflation was under control. If we can get back into that environment, that's a, a buy and hold strategy for risk assets. On WealthTrack, inflation's powerful impact. Portfolio manager Jack McIntyre is on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and women investing in security and education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. It's been four decades since inflation has played such a powerful role in the economy and markets. How inflation goes will have a big impact on the level of interest rates, economic growth, and the direction of the financial markets. It took then Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker two back-to-back recessions in the early 1980s to slash inflation from more than 13% when he took office in 1979 to under 4% when he left the Fed in 1987. To tame inflation, the Fed nearly doubled its benchmark federal funds rate from an average of 11% in 1979 to 20% in 1980, sending the U.S. economy into the severe 81-82 recession and unemployment soaring to nearly 11%. Today, central banks around the world have their work cut out for them. As you can see from this chart, global inflation rates are running far above the target inflation rates set by the central banks. The U.S., the Eurozone, and U.K. are prime examples with high inflation and low targets. Countries like Poland, Russia, and the Czech Republic are under extreme pressure with extraordinarily elevated inflation. And the two exceptions, China, where inflation is running below its target rate, and Japan, where they are about equal, are at the opposite end of the spectrum. This week's guest who provided us with that chart says inflation is the key to the economy and markets. He is Jack McIntyre, portfolio manager with Brandywine Global Investment Management, where he oversees the firm's global fixed income strategies. He has been co-portfolio manager of the flagship Brandywine Global Opportunities Fund since 2012. Rated four-star bronze by Morningstar, the fund has a history of beating the market and its Morningstar World Bond category since its 2006 inception. McIntyre and his team focus on finding high real yields, that's after inflation, in global bonds and currencies with an emphasis on government bonds. I began the interview by asking him why he says investing is now all about inflation. Why is it playing such an outsized role? When I talk about inflation being so important, basically what I mean is that all central banks now have one mandate, uh, breaking the back of inflation. Inflation, it's a global phenomenon. It's not as though a few select countries have an inflation problem. Uh, It's global Uh, away from China. China's probably the one country that doesn't have that. But right now, central banks are on a a mission to break the back of inflation. If you go back to what Chairman Powell said at the recent Jackson Hole speech, uh, boy, he introduced the concept of pain. 
And that means that to get, they're going to basically do whatever it takes to get inflation lower, price stability. They're willing to sacrifice, sacrifice economic growth, see some weakness in the labor market because inflation just erodes purchasing power. Uh, you can see real incomes are deteriorating. So uh, it's incredibly important for the Fed to, to break the back of inflation. Well, I showed a chart in my introduction to you that you had sent us showing that the inflation rates in countries all over the world and what their target inflation rates were for their central banks. And there is a huge discrepancy. And so it looks like in order to reach those target rates, uh, there is going to be a lot of pain. Would, would you say that that is the case? I, I do. I, I think, though, particularly in the developed world, it's going to be a combination of, of both inflation peaking and coming down, but central banks maintaining the commitment to continue to tighten policy. Again, it's interesting, since the July FOMC meeting, we have seen a number of Fed speakers come out and say that. Basically, it's telling the markets, don't do a dovish pivot next year. It's way too early. Uh, and I think that's a global phenomenon right now. I've actually been impressed in the developing world. A lot of central banks have actually, they started tightening before developed market central banks, and they continue to tighten and tighten ag aggressively right now. You know, you have to look at the drivers of inflation. And in the developing world, uh, Food and energy prices represent a larger share of their, their CPI basket. So they've got to um, tighten until we start to see sort of the demand for energy and for food, which is challenging, start to roll over. I, I think we are starting to see some signs of that. So it could be that the central banks in the developing markets actually start to ease policy before we see in the developed markets. At one point, Wall Street was saying, oh, you know, the, the inflation is kind of rolling over. Commodity prices are rolling over. Supply chain issues are, are loosening up. And therefore, the Fed is going to start, you know, cutting rates uh, in 2023. Uh, has that theory basically just gone out the window after Powell's Jackson Hole speech? It has. And, and it started to go out the window even before Chairman Powell's speech, but he he nailed uh, the last nail in the coffin because he, he sent a clear message. And he also sent a message in such a short speech that their target of inflation remains 2%. He referenced it a, a, a number of times. The reason I say that is because, you know, there was a little chatter that maybe the Fed might back off, start to go to a 3% inflation rate. But no, that was not the message he said. It, it's important because, again, it means that the odds of recession are increased, uh, the Fed taking us into a recession, to break inflation. You have, have uh, basically told clients that we are in the midst of an inflationary bust right now. What does that mean to be in a, an inflationary mm -hmm. bust period? And also talk to us about the ramifications for investing. So that's just a, a fancy way of saying we're in stagflation. Meaning okay. inflation is still elevated, clearly, but growth has been slowing. It is a tough environment for financial assets. It's the reason uh, equities uh, have underperformed. It's been, you know, the S&P, the first half of the year, it's the worst performance in 50 years. Uh, for the bond market using treasuries, it's the worst returns 
Yeah, like 1788 or yeah. something. I think Deutsche Bank came up with that number for 10-year treasuries, the, the worst performance. But, you know, in that environment, cash is king. I mean, it's not king because you do erode some uh, pricing power because of inflation, but at least you're not losing actual you know, money, nominal, negative nominal returns when you hold cash. So what are you doing at Brandywine now? So right now, uh, we are positioning the portfolio for transitioning out of that inflationary bust, that stagflation environment, to one where inflation actually does start to, to come down. And I feel better having listened to, to Chairman Powell's speech in Jackson Hole. Uh, it's going to create some pain in terms of economic activity. But so we've been buying some U.S. Treasuries, the long end of the curve, uh, because that will do well. If to get inflation lower, you have to go into a traditional recession. Mm -hmm. We've also been adding some emerging market uh, bonds as well, hedge, so we, we don't have the currency exposure. Those markets are going to do well if it's a mild recession, if it's a, a sort of a, uh, a mid-cycle slowdown, soft landing, however you want to phrase it, that they'll start to do very well. It, it, it's sort of the disinflationary boom. It's sort of Goldilocks. It means that we get economic growth without too much inflation. When you're talking about the emerging market bonds and a, you know, kind of a, a soft landing, are you talking about a soft landing globally? It, it would have to be a soft landing globally. Right. Uh, you know, and again, China has a big influence on that as well because they are the one country that is actually counter-cyclical right now. They're, they've already slowed down. They need more stimulus in terms of monetary and fiscal stimulus, which, which they are doing. You know, I, I have to go back to uh, the resolve that central banks have. The Fed is, a, is independent. Not all central banks are. As far as other central banks, where they're much more uh, influenced by the political, domestic political situations in their given countries, how firm is the resolve in other countries? Yeah, that's a, a key component of how we actually invest because we only invest in countries that have strong, independent financial institutions, particularly central banks, because you're, you're absolutely right. When growth is slowing and you still have an inflation problem, boy, it, it's tough because central banks need to break the back of inflation and sometimes that creates economic pain. The Fed is going to be tested. You know, we'll have to see what happens when we start to see weakness in the labor market. Do they really kind of have the backbone to stick with it? You know, I think they will because we have prior experience. The Fed in the 1960s and 70s in particular, they, you know, they tightened. Inflation came down some and then they started easing again. And then... You know, and again, I keep going back to what Chairman Powell referenced in his, his Jackson Hole speech. He took speech. He talked a lot about inflation expectations and inflation expectations. Once they become unanchored, I mean, they continue to increase. Boy, then that takes a lot more effort in terms of monetary policy tightening uh, to break the back of inflation expectations. Where are we now as far as the anchoring of inflation expectations? And when you're talking about the anchor of inflation expectations, uh, that sounds so technical, but basically that means if you're looking at the University of Michigan and what consumers are saying they expect inflation to be, what, five to 10 years from now? Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm referencing the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, it, it comes out monthly. They give a preliminary, then a final. 
So we just recently got the final version. And you're right. So the five to 10 year inflation expectation is the more important part of that uh, report. So right now, I'd say inflation expectations over that time period are still anchored. They're sub 3%. We know the one year is higher because that's more sensitive to inflation today, not, not surprisingly. But again, it's interesting. The Fed wants to get inflation to the point where it does not become part of a, a spending decision, an investment decision uh, on, you know, by the consumer or by the corporate sector. They used the, the, the phrase uh, or the word of being unattentive, meaning that, hey, it doesn't influence economic behavior. Clearly, we're not there yet because inflation is influencing economic behavior. But based on those longer term inflation expectations, it's solvable. It's solvable without necessarily taking the U.S. economy into a bad recession. You expect the winter to be painful. Do you want to tell us how painful you expect the winter to be because central banks are raising interest rates and specifically the Fed will be raising interest rates? Yeah, Consuelo, this is the dynamic. And, and again, I'm, I'm excited on some level that Chairman Powell referenced it. When I say uh, pain, the idea here is that central banks, and it's not just the Fed, the ECB uh, right. is, is talking about raising mm-hmm. 75 basis points. But the whole point here is that central banks are tightening into slowing economic conditions. And that historically is not something they do. Normally, normally when you get a slowdown in economic activity, hey, central banks are there to, to kind of I don't know, provide the punch bowl, you know, provide monetary stimulus. That is not the case. Uh, so that's why, again, I think the pain is going to manifest itself into risk assets and primarily equities uh, having to reprice uh, to, to sell off in here. You look for high real yields. That is, those are high yields uh, after inflation. Where are you finding high real yields now if globally? Yeah, it's there's not a... a a target-rich environment from that standpoint, because again, you have high inflation and some inflation uh, expectations moving higher. But having said that, there are opportunities. When I look at Latin America, uh, Mexico, Brazil in particular, again, the central banks have been aggressive. They've taken policy rates to levels either at or above their inflation rates. So inflation-adjusted policy rates are actually positive right now. That's a good sign. That means that the central banks are committed to breaking back the back of inflation. It means inflation expectations are going to start to decline uh, in there. So so we've been adding those types of bonds, as I mentioned earlier. So treasuries, you know, this is where it gets a little more challenged because you're making assumption uh, that inflation is peaking and will come down. Uh, but again, it's a hedge against a major slowdown in the economy right now. Are you assuming that inflation has peaked? We are. What, what are you looking at that's telling you that? We've seen commodity prices by and large come down, but you also look at the inflation numbers themselves. Uh, you know, a couple of things. I'm looking at goods deflation. You know, I'm looking at inventories being elevated at a time where demand is waning right now. Mm-hmm. Where we don't know what's going to happen is how quickly and what level inflation is going to come down to. And, and that, again, is going to be critical 
not for 2022, but for 2023, it's going to be an environment where Fed funds are going to be higher and longer at the same time. And that's clearly a, a new message uh, over the last month, and the markets are starting to reprice that. Talk to us about currencies, because mm. the dollar has been incredibly strong for years now. And, you know, here you're looking uh, at currencies all over the world to see where there are opportunities and, again, high real returns in currencies. Where are you finding uh, attractive currencies? So you're right. The, the dollar is basically been in a, a positive trend since 2011. So, you know, that, that, that means this bull market in the dollar is very long relative to prior ones that we've seen. And, and it's it's actually coming at a cost right now. You know, it's interesting. The last sort of earnings cycle, you saw a number of companies talk about the strong dollar hurting their competitiveness. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the signs that we're on the lookout for when a currency moves so much that it influences economic behavior. So uh, we've started to see that. So the dollar uh, has been king. But, uh, you know, if we are having this conversation a year from now, I suspect that the dollar is going to be lower a couple of reasons. One is that I think the odds of a recession in the U.S. have been elevated, and that's not getting discounted in, in the U.S. dollar. So we know Europe is struggling. Europe is probably in a recession right now. I think that's getting discounted in the euro. However, the ECB is sounding like they're going to be pretty hawkish in here, maybe even potentially more hawkish than the Federal Reserve, so that actually could provide some support to the euro. Clearly, with equities starting to come under more pressure, the dollar could do well, but I view that through a short-term lens. I think things are being put in place where the dollar could actually start to weaken over the course of the coming year or two. And and why, again, would it weaken? I'm looking at, you know, comparative uh, interest rates and and the Fed's very competitive, even with other central banks raising their rates. Yeah, this is where currencies get to be a little bit more complex because there's never one factor always driving currencies. It's not always the interest rate differentials. Sometimes it is, but sometimes uh, currency markets start to focus on growth differentials, and that's why I think you know the idea, uh, you know, and, and again, it's not totally baked in yet. But mm -hmm. if, the, if the U.S. has to go into a recession, that, you know, in terms of additional information, that would be a surprise to the U.S. dollar. That's why I kind of alluded to, you know, right now, everybody knows that Europe, Europe and the Eurozone is in, in, is in a recession. They've got an energy crisis going uh, on right now. Markets are discounting mechanisms. That's fully priced in to the euro. What's not priced into the U.S. dollar is the potential recession scenario that the U.S. has to go through to break the back of inflation. Having said that, if we come out of this in, with a mild recession globally, sort of the soft landing and growth is better a year from now, uh, that could be a catalyst to get the dollar to weaken because I suspect that you could see re better relative growth outside of the U.S. And again, part of this is China's commitment to doing whatever it takes to get economic growth. And when China grows, the rest of the world typically, typically grows. I'm a big believer in the developing world becoming developed. It's a structural, secular trend. Uh, that's still in place right now. But again, one of the reasons the U.S. dollar has been strong is because the U.S. has attracted a lot of capital into the tech sector. 
We, you know, we've got great companies uh, that, you know, other countries don't have that, but that's one component. And you've got a lot of undervalued equity markets globally that could actually start to attract some capital, and that would potentially benefit some of their currencies. Your currency exposure, it, it looks like it is, was like a, a third was the U.S. dollar. And then next in line was the euro with about over, a little over 20 percent and the Japanese yen a little mm. over 20 percent as well. Does that still stand today? It, it does. So this is, in, this is interesting because historically we don't have this much allocated to the G3 currencies, the right. dollar, the euro and, and the yen. It means that we have a lot of firepower. You know, we've got a very liquid portfolio that we can deploy very quickly when opportunities present themselves. We're in aggregate, we're neutral on European currency. So we are still underweight the euro. Uh, we do own some other European currencies, but relative to our benchmark, we're, we're neutral. We are overweight the Japanese yen. What are the reasons you're investing in the Japanese yen again? The Japanese yen is very correlated with U.S. Treasury yields. And as U.S. Treasury yields decline, the, the Japanese yen strengthens historically. So there is a, a chance that, you know, the, the yen could actually rally versus the U.S. dollar, which, again, that's very contrarian. The market is not positioned for that scenario. You keep mentioning uh, a soft landing. You're not mentioning a serious, severe recession. Why not? So uh, I should mention those both and, uh, and give them equal weights right now. What we've been doing in our portfolios is allocating uh, into fixed income instruments that are going to do well in both of those environments. Any bright spots? <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, that's a good question. <laughs> um, hey, the bright spot is, and again, I'm not saying it's anytime soon. Right. But, you know, we should be thankful and appreciative that central banks are out there uh, with job one of breaking inflation. And I'd much rather have central banks bring out inflation over the course of the next year versus backing off and having a, a decade of higher inflation. I mean, it's, it's the 1970s. Uh, think about, you know, you had very short business cycles, a lot of volatility in financial markets and in the real economy. So, I, I you know, the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s, extended business cycles because inflation was under control. If we can get back into that environment, uh, that's a, a buy and hold strategy for risk assets. Right. And if there were one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of? It makes sense to have sources of income outside the U.S. to have some non-U.S. dollar exposure in the portfolio. Because, again, when we think about what countries might come out of this inflation cycle first, I'm thinking it's going to be emerging markets, more specifically Latin America. Uh, they could be lead the charge. You've seen incredible underperformance in a lot of those bond markets, and that's just a, a way of meaning that their yields are attractive outright and versus those safe haven government bonds. So that's going to be a big source of return once we get through this inflation cycle. And Latin America specifically, I mean, you've got positions in Mexico. Mexican government bonds, Brazilian government bonds, uh, some Chilean government bonds, Peruvian mm -hmm. government bonds, you know, based on our metrics, the bonds that offer the most compelling value right now.
you know, again, I'm always hesitant to go out and say everybody needs to buy Mexican government bonds. No, I don't want uh, your viewers to do that. <laughs> I, what I want them to do, though, is to think about a diversified uh, global bond portfolio. Jack McIntyre, what a fascinating job you have. And it's a fascinating conversation as well. So thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. Oh, it's my pleasure, Michaela. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a nonfiction book recommendation that reads like a thriller, but highlights the all too real perils of investing in Russia. It is Read Red Notice by Bill Browder. Browder was the founder and manager of Hermitage Capital Management, which before its destruction by Putin and his minions was once the largest foreign investment fund in Russia. The full title of the book captures the essence of this autobiographical tale, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. As best-selling author Walter Isaacson wrote, Bill Browder is an amazing moral crusader, and his book is a must-read for anyone who seeks to understand Russia, Putin, or the challenges of doing business in the world today. Browder's relentless campaign to expose the corruption of Putin and his allies and avenge the brutal death of his courageous Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, has had one notable success. The Magnitsky Act, which sanctioned the Russian individuals responsible for his murder and the massive Russian tax fraud he tried to expose. Red Notice is as inspiring as it is riveting. You won't be able to put it down. Next week, FBA New Income's veteran portfolio manager Tom Atterbury on the new investment opportunities leading them to reopen the fund to new investors. In this week's extra feature, Jack McIntyre explains how understanding the relationship between the U.S. and China has simplified his global management job. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a fantastic Labor Day weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.